Chris, I'm almost an Olympian. Oh, almost an Olympian. I went curling the other day. I have to say, not as easy as it looks on television. Everybody watches it on TV and they get the uh, the stones, as we call it in the industry, close to the T-line, which is the like bullseye, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just, you know, using some lingo here, us, us in the biz, understand. But anyway, I threw stones three and four and seven and eight. Uh, number eight is also known as the hammer. So I got to bring the hammer each time. What's separating you from being an Olympian, Reed? A lot of free time. I feel like I might could get there over a period of time, but I don't know how I would ever practice enough. Maybe on all those times that you get the uh, snowstorms on your roads, you could just start tossing stones down the icy streets of Nashville. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 262 of Touchpoint. Reed Smith, that's Chris Boyer. Chris, the numbers are getting so high, um, I'm having to really think about them as I say them now. It's not like, welcome to episode seven, right? It's... Mm-hmm. 262. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, the numbers are going to pretty soon. It's going to be uh, four digits. And then what are we going to do? We got a bit, <laughs> you know, we got a bit before then, um, what another 15 ish years. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. You're something right. Something like that. I, I think we'll be, I don't know that I'm going to still do it then, but it depends if people are still listening, maybe I will. You never know. Yeah. Well, speaking of listeners, uh, thank you all for tuning in. Certainly appreciate everyone that listens to the show, gives us feedback. We get such nice notes on Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, even via email. I know it's a little old school, but even via email, you know, talking about the episodes and episodes they liked and guests and all that kind of fun stuff. If you're new, a quick plug, touchpoint.health is the website where you can find out more about the show. So you can find out more about the show, Chris or myself, any of our previous episodes you can dig into. You can also check out some of the other shows on the network in those show hosts and episodes and all that kind of fun thing. While you're there at touchpoint.health, you'll notice up in the top hand navigation, something called the TPS report. And if you click on that, all it's going to do is ask you for an email address. And all we're going to do with that email address is send you one email per week at the most with a few articles to get your week started Uh, And that's it. So we'd love for you to sign up for that. Certainly check out the other shows on the network and subscribe, rate, review, all the kind of fun things. But let's take a quick pause here and then we'll come back and jump into today's episode. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. 
And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Here we are. I still feel like we're just starting the new year, but again, we're over a 12th of the way through 2022. But all that said, there's still a lot of really interesting content articles out there and certainly several people that we're talking to, whether that be today or on previous episodes, talking to about, you know, kind of predictions. Or future episodes for that matter, right? It's clear that more so than many years that since we've been doing this podcast, Reed, have there been a lot of conversations around things that are going to be changing in our industry, things that are shifting. And so today we're going to focus in on on discussing the way our industry is actually changing. We have both a macro view that we're going to talk about, like a worldwide view of how healthcare, the health industries are changing. We're also going to get a little bit more micro. And then later on, Carrie Likens is going to join us and share her predictions for significant changes to our industry this year. So all this talk about change, and I can't get this song, Wind of Change by Scorpions, out of my head. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, so everyone out there, you're welcome. Now you'll be humming that the rest of the episode. But uh, <laughs> excited that uh, you had a chance to visit with Carrie. She, I, she's just fun to talk to. I don't really know how else to put it, but she's such fun to talk to. Has great insights, certainly. So, well, where do we want to kick off today? Well, let's kick off first with sort of that, as I mentioned, a macro view of the global healthcare outlook. Uh, Deloitte. Our friends over at Deloitte, I actually know some people that do work for Deloitte, so I do have oh, yeah. friends there. They published the 2022 Global Healthcare Outlook, which is a pretty comprehensive view from their perspective of how the overall healthcare landscape looks like across the globe. And they even subtitled it, Are We Finally Seeing the Long-Promised Transformation? What do you think, Reed? Are we finally going to see that? I don't know. Was it promised? Have we promised anybody? <laughs> I don't know. I think we will see a transformation, certainly. I mean, we talked about this. Even we're seeing these, uh, you know, kind of incremental changes, certainly. I don't know if we were promised anything. but That's true. I, I don't recall getting any kind of promissory note from anyone. But uh, they, they start off by kind of introducing, and this we'll link to this in the show notes, and definitely go out and look at this, because Reed and I, we're just going to touch on some of the high-level aspects here. But they start off by indicating that globally, the healthcare sector continues to face unprecedented, they actually, they actually call it precedented changes, uh-huh. in, in the ongoing pandemic. That continues to dominate how healthcare systems are focusing their attention and the resources that they're providing. All of that is like sort of happening now on a, on a, on a macro level across the world. I know you and I talk a lot about what's happening in the US, but it's everywhere it's happening. One of the things that they saw as a macro trend is that health systems and health leaders in our industry are continuing to elevate the human experience of their workforce and trying to reshape what, how, and where healthcare is being delivered, how it's being performed. And that goes all the way through virtual health services, 
forging partnerships between public and private sectors to address not only the things related to the pandemic, vaccines, treatments, supplies, and all of that, but start to get a view of the larger industry challenges that we're facing. Let's jump into those six pressing sector issues, as they put it. First is around health equity. Obviously, there are structural flaws in our health system. We know that. They highlight here that poverty and lack of effective financing systems for just simply the basic services for primary health care, for drug coverage, mental health support, health screenings, all of those things have always been a barrier to health equity across the world. And it's only gotten worse since the pandemic. Interesting. Only gotten worse. Overall, they still stress that there's insufficient and outdated infrastructure in the health systems, facilities, technology, clinicians, and that's going to be a major hurdle. You know, you see that in some of the more rural parts uh, of the countries. Yeah, I can remember in Texas, you see critical access facilities, things like that, that yes, they don't have the same level of like imaging, for example, um, as you know, they do in the big cities and things like that. I know that's a pretty easy one to point out. But it's interesting that they point out that, you know, while there are some emerging solutions, right? So you think about telemedicine, virtual care, that kind of thing. Um, you know, even apps that, you know, your employer gives you uh, for, you know, some of these types of things, AI-enabled chatbots, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The, the uptake, they say, is hindered by concerns about the aforementioned data privacy and confidentiality. So that's, that's still top of mind for folks. And then layer on top of that, a global economic recession that we're facing because of the pandemic. And what this results in is it's likely to make some near-term healthcare sector capital investments difficult to kind of support this. Now, governments are being forced to prioritize spending on filling gaps in clinical workforces. They say here that many countries today lack the necessary regulations and policies to counteract and or eliminate some of these long-standing health inequities. That kind of leaves a ominous view of what's happening here, Reed. What do you think? Well, on that high note, the uh, the second uh, one they have listed here is mental health and well being. More of the same here. It says you know for decades this field has been under resourced, stigmatized, uh, you know things like that, right? Like it just hasn't been something anybody's willing to talk about. We see that a lot in sports right now. You know that's an easy one to point out, football and things like that. But that the burden of mental health and behavioral health disorders is large, complex, and it's, it's being exacerbated by the pandemic. You know, when you talk about mental health and well-being, this gets into more than just what's being delivered in the four walls of health systems, right, or traditional hospitals. You're getting into health, social, financial stressors, things that are happening in the community. They even estimate that by 2030, mental illness costs are expected to reach more than $6 trillion annually on a global level. $6 trillion. With a T, you know, you used to talk about like with a B, you know, you want to make sure people understood you said billions, but yeah, trillion, that's a lot. I'm not even sure how you really calculate that, but that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Now the emphasis here is on employers and government involvement to really amplify and act on access and health equity issues, particularly around mental health and well-being. But there's also a technology component to this too, right, Reed? Yeah, again, has the potential to transform both the mental and behavioral health systems to be more accessible, affordable, scalable, you know, fit for purpose. So 
Uh, and I do think that's where a lot of the virtual options uh, come in and make a ton of sense. You're seeing people make moves into this area because, number one, it is becoming less of a stigma uh, and people are willing to talk about it and some things like that. So I think people are uncovering the opportunity, certainly as a disruptor, but also the fact that people are willing to participate along with them in the space. Those are two major pressing sector issues, as they say. Some others here, they talk about the future of medical science. We are witnessing an unprecedented growth in digital medicine products, even evidence-based software, hardware, interoperable data and platforms are kind of supporting all of this. I guess this is where the promissory note of transformation would occur. We've heard about personalized medicine for a long time. We're starting to see that happen in medical science as well. But that whole process of scientific discovery, development, and commercialization is expensive. And so they kind of underscore the need to balance the benefits of medical technology innovation with the practicalities of controlling healthcare spending. Well, along those lines, another one that they point out is public health. Obviously, there's some vulnerabilities here and that the pandemic has really become a catalyst to reimagine what the future of public health could be. They need to, and they're talking here about things need to be more human-centered, inclusive, resilient, you know, all the things that we think about when we think about just reimagining really anything, right? A process or in this case, you know, a whole utility They point out the need for public-private partnerships in the health sector, which I think will be really important. I mean, that's going to get us there quicker, certainly, if we're able to bring people in from outside the industry and disruptors and people that have good ideas. You know, we're seeing this all over the place, really. And that, you know, digital technologies also play a big role in this. You know, they, they mentioned smart cities. I'm still not sure exactly what that means, but I hear a lot about smart cities. I feel like we're just like the Jetsons or something. Anyway, <laughs> um, but that that's going to be, you know, digital technology will play this important role and that, you know, health systems will be required to source, you know, investment and promote shared aims of, you know, things from around wellness and kind of these community initiatives that they talk about. And this extends beyond public health. The fifth factor that they call out here is environmental impact. And they even do a call out here to say to healthcare leaders, you need to extend the do no harm ethic to the environment. So we need to build resilience, not only in our existing infrastructure, supply chain and workforces, but we have to understand that climate change is also causing impacts to health, including they've noticed an influx of patients having respiratory CV and other climate change induced health issues. These are things that also are a macro trend impacting our industry. Well, the sixth and final thing that they they list here, uh, digital transformation in healthcare delivery model convergence. So the delivery models, they say, are under intensifying pressure, all due to skyrocketing patient numbers, employee burnout, workforce shortage, you know, all the all the fun stuff. There are infrastructure constraints, certainly, and social distancing has forced us to quickly pivot to virtual care and rely on all these advanced technologies like cloud computing and AI, interoperability, analytics. They talk about in here that there are still lingering uh, questions around funding and business models. That's what's kind of caused some of the uh, slow adoption around like virtual care historically was like, you know, how do you get paid for doing this? So ultimately, they say that we must construct a HCDM healthcare delivery model that is a hospital without walls. And, and so you see some of this with like the hospital at home movement and people talking kind of in that space. But 
inpatient care with alternative models, including that community, and and I think more and more home-based care. So these are six large factors that are kind of impacting us on a macro level. Clearly, Reed, there are a lot of things at work here. How are we going to work our way through that? You and I are going to touch on that a little bit after the break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front-row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. As promised, Reed, we're going to jump into something a little bit more micro. We were talking before the break about global trends that are impacting healthcare. There was an underlying theme there around digital is ever present as part of the way through. But in addition, you know, there's these all these factors that are coming at us from multiple different places that are just converging in our industry. We found an article from Health Affairs that is called For Healthcare Providers, What Are Five Trends You Need to Watch For in 2022? Kind of starts off with the fact that we are in an environment that's one of two narratives. On one hand, there's a lot of optimism as more Americans receive vaccines and resume in-person interactions. We've seen like a lot of great advancements in healthcare, but on the other hand, people are frustrated as the pandemic continues to drag on. There's mixed guidance, new variants, and this whole concept of returning to normal is faced with price inflation and supply chain disruptions. So what does that mean for us? Well, there's uh, there's five trends that I guess mean something <laughs> to us. <laughs> the first one, the freights of wrath. So they talk in here, you just mentioned supply chains, but that they'll be, they'll be forced to modernize and adapt to become more resilient. So this means implementing two overarching strategies, creating a greater diversity of supply chain sources, moving away from you know, the just-in-time ordering, man, that was such a big topic of so many books for a long time, you know, just-in-time engineering and fulfillment and things like that, and digitizing and tech-enabling operations to provide more real-time visibility. It sounds a lot like what Amazon does, right? Where you're able to know where all of your inventory is at any point in time, regardless mm-hmm. if it's distributed across multiple different warehouses in the country. It's really implementing that kind of model. That's not to say that we haven't started, right? The government already has issued a regulation increasing what purchasers, government purchasers can do uh, around purchasing medical supplies, like buying from domestic sources, creating steady predictable demand for low margin critical care products. Think of the abundance now of KN95 masks that are out there that you can even get them for free now in grocery stores that you go to. And the private sector is also augmenting these efforts with investments of their own. But there's something a little bit more challenging to, to tackle, right? Yes, Q-tips. Uh, there's a shortage <laughs> on Q-tips, apparently, because of all the COVID tests. <laughs> that may be true, but we are not Amazon. 
health systems that are purchasing products, medical device products, et cetera, even medications and things like that, we don't have those environments in place where we could do like Amazon. And there are very few supply chain operations that are that tech enabled to allow us to become that sophisticated. We rarely like are transparent about how we're purchasing, even, you know, at Mm -hmm. a state level, many manufacturers are only aware of about 20% of their upstream supply chains for raw materials. One of the things, though, that trading partners are going to turn to is artificial intelligence and big data. That seems like AI and big data solve every problem that's out there, doesn't it? Every time we talk about it? uh, Just a little blockchain edit will be good. That leads to another trend entirely, Reed. And what is that? Well, they label it pandemic poaching and pay. Oh, my. So this phase of the pandemic is focused on labor. Late 2021, about a third of all clinical employees had quit their job. Is that right? Wow. A third of all clinical employees had quit their job, nearly double the rate from two years ago. So to retain valued employees, providers have been dipping into wallets, increasing pay for qualified nursing staff by more than 12%. Because they're trying to keep the nurses from leaving and going to these travel nurse organizations or even going to uh, digital health companies. They're trying to keep them on staff. And so they're dipping into their pockets to do that. And, you know, this whole concept of staff planning and community development of your clinical staff is really to help manage those costs because that burnout and turnover costs is significant. They even indicate that there are about a half a million nurse retirements expected in this year alone, Reed. Oh, man. That's pretty scary to think about. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's so many other ways that they can use their talents. I think, you know, that, you know, obviously it's a supply and demand thing. You know, even take burnout out of the equation, just you get down to supply and demand, and all of a sudden you have the luxury to, you know, consider all your options, right? Whereas if I'm, 16 years old and going to find a summer job, I can't exactly just, you know, hold out for the coolest job in town. There's all the leverages on the the uh, clinical side of the equation, which is well known, right? And it's been this way for a long time. And I think just the pandemic layering on burnout has completely uh, escalated this to a place of a real crisis. We're going to be forced to find monies in other ways. And that really is looking out where there's inefficiencies. We're talking about like a potential offset of $24 billion in unreimbursed salary expenses in order for us to just remain competitive. We have to eliminate all those tasks that are delegated to non-clinical staff and that can be enabled by technology. I know that this is maybe one of those underwriting promises, right, of transformation. They say here that providers will also need to clean data and analytic tools so they could start to benchmark against their peers and identify any areas that may be creating bottlenecks and limiting throughput in order to understand how they can manage the right staffing level. You know, there's just such uh, an opportunity, I think, to reimagine even what does burnout do to staff and are there other options for those staff members to not just completely lose them? I think there's all kinds of opportunity here and we'll see a lot of lot of focus in this area going forward, I'm sure. A few more opportunities they kind of highlight is in their next trend that they're calling the bonfire of the inefficiencies. This is <laughs> this is a corollary to that problem that we just discussed. We have to find tech-enabled manual processes 
that waste time, create inefficiencies, and contribute to this unnecessary cost, the high cost of healthcare. Get this. 85% of all healthcare purchasing tasks, read, are done manually using paper checks. This results in a four to six billion dollar erroneous payment and invoicing errors annually. It also wastes, and they estimate this, nearly forty billion dollars a year in transaction fees and other efficiencies. Could you imagine if we move to just electronic invoicing and payment across the board? There's some money savings. I just love a good triplicate form, though. <laughs> uh, some sort of a carbon copy. I just, I don't know what we would do at that point. But they're talking here about another area to pursue is automating administrative tasks. They call it coding in here, for example. It's essential, but where incomplete diagnoses can meet inadequate payments, is there a place for automation? So it's like, you know, we get, you got to have all the necessary information in there. You got to have all the right codes and, you know, coding is a big deal. Well, is there a way that, you know, maybe AI, machine learning, you know, that kind of stuff, but we can automate, you know, some of this piece. And then lastly, there's a Council of Affordable Quality Healthcare. I'm glad to know there is one out there. Mm-hmm. They estimate that automating provider and health plan interactions by moving to fully electronic transactions could save $16.3 billion a year in the United States. That's $6 off provider labor costs for each transaction while simultaneously speeding time to care. Why aren't we doing those things? Seems like a good idea. So clearly, we have to find those opportunities and automate them because that's where technology can really help us get there. What's the next one on our on our list? Dystopian disparities. <laughs> that's a, that's a, their, their fancy way of saying, right? There's a pervasive problem in healthcare, uneven health and healthcare needs of different communities, health and equity. The other side of the coin they call out is that as we move to payment models in which providers are accountable for total cost and quality of care for the communities they serve, providers in underserved and vulnerable areas are inherently higher at risk because they're expected to achieve better health outcomes, mirroring national averages with populations that are more at need, so to speak. And looking at ways where we can harness technology, here we go, technology is here again, Reed, to capture social health needs using tools like NLP, natural language processing, and other key indicators that are out there, like through the open notes that Dr. V has talked about before, that Mm -hmm. coupled with AI can help us start to develop and understand analytics to predict social health needs and risks and ultimately close those gaps. AI has such a powerful application within this space of solving the health inequity issues. Well, maybe not solving, but at least getting to the solution of health inequity. Because they, they're talking here about, you know, the solution is really understanding the factors and, you know, uh, all those types of things, but that very few organizations actually have any sort of a screening for social needs and even fewer than document that in the medical record. Last one here, uh, lifestyles of the smart and wired. So underpinning every trend they say discussed so far is artificial intelligence. We've said it a number of times, Chris. Uh, So to make supply chain demand predictions, uh, extend labor, save time, money, uh, remain competitive against all the disruptors in the space, look for missed opportunities, AI is the inroad to all of these things, they say. 
we we say that every year, Reed. Right? I, we we've been saying mm-hmm. AI mm-hmm. is the the bellwether for everything here, right? The use of data models, predictive analytics, are starting to be more commonplace in health systems and how care is being delivered, and they're being used for multiple different types of use cases. But really, the march toward value based care continues to accelerate, and AI enabled capabilities are are really becoming the table stakes for any provider group that helps to remain competitive with disruptive upstarts that are coming into our space using technology to enhance a care experience. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we have that knowledge of that patient. We need to start leveraging it the right way. They kind of round this out by saying AI is needed to keep up with the, uh, the pace of change. So I'm doing the math here, right? We started off with a $6 trillion worldwide mm-hmm. deficit. And in the second half of the show here, we talked about things that say, let me add this up, one, $150 billion, uh, 4 to $6 billion. There's another $24 billion there. We're still coming up with a bit of a shortfall, Reed. Even if we enabled AI everywhere right now, there's still a bit of a challenge here. Overall, our industry is at a turning point here, which leads us to the interview I had with Carrie Lichen. She actually created her own article around the predictions for healthcare for this year. We discussed three of her five predictions. It was a really interesting interview. I encourage you all to give it a listen, and we'll do that after this break. And then Reed and I will be back to close out the show. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast. And today we have one of our most popular guests on the show, Carrie. You've been on the show, I think this is your sixth or seventh time on our podcast. Wow. We always like talking to you because you have such great insights. You're an industry leader. Before we get started, Carrie, there may be some people listening in that do not know you. Can you share a little bit of your background? Sure, sure. I didn't realize I have had the pleasure of being on this podcast for so many visits, but thank you for having me again. Happy to speak a little bit about uh, who I am. So I'm Carrie Lykin. I'm the head of industry for healthcare at Yext, and Yext is a search engine cloud. We help power search experiences anywhere where people are searching, and I, I run the healthcare business for Uh, for Yext. I've been there for almost six years now. I was hired to get healthcare up and running and it's been quite a wild ride and it's been quite interesting. And I think we've done a lot in the healthcare space. Prior to that, I spent eight and a half years at Google. I helped to start the healthcare team out of the Google Boston office. And I particularly focused on the provider space while I was there on the AdWords side. So I was on the business side. I wasn't on the engineering side, uh, but then I moved over to Yext from Google. So I have a really interesting perspective, I think, because I was able to see actual search data for my eight and a half years at Google. I have an interesting perspective on the evolution of the digital patient journey and how things have changed on how consumers and patients and individuals are looking for healthcare online and what that means for healthcare organizations. 
you are also very prolific. And so um, when we talk today through the conversation, people listening in, be sure to check our show notes so that you can get access to some of the things that Carrie writes about and all the thoughts that she has. Today in particular, we're going to be focusing in on an article that you published. You actually published it at the beginning of this year of January, but uh, even though we're in February talking about this, it still is relevant today. I think it seems like every year you uh, sit down and, and map out some predictions for healthcare for the year. Yes, I do. I think my role is an interesting role at Yext because uh, while I sit on the product and strategy team, I get to have a lot of insight into what's going on with our product, of course, and where we're going as a business. But then I also work really closely with the sales team and also our customer success team. I get to speak to a lot of organizations across the country, even some globally, uh, because our business spans the globe. And when I hear things being said, I typically take note. And then when I start to hear things repeatedly, it starts to get my wheels turning a little bit. And I start to think about, hmm, I'm starting to hear this. This is starting to become a thing or it's starting to become a trend. And that coupled with just being tapped into the you know industry information that's coming out and reading the studies and seeing what's going on in the news. And then also, of course, loving tech because I used to work for Google. Putting all of that together, I like to think about where has the industry been and where do I think it is going? And then I like to write about it because I believe writing helps to clarify our thoughts. And so I'll put it all out there. And then I love to get feedback back on what those predictions actually are and whether they turn out. Well, in the past, you've had some really good, insightful predictions that have indeed panned out. I think over the last couple of years, though, right, we've been faced with some, I would say, unexpected turns in our industry. And so as we kind of enter into 2022, when you publish this year's predictions, there are five of them in this article that, again, we'll link to in the show notes. But I want to focus in on three of them in particular, because the three that jumped out at me really point to a significant disruption in the healthcare industry. One of the predictions you said is uh, the concept of the decoupling of primary care from the health system. Tell us a little bit about what your perspective is on that. Yeah, so I, I thought a lot about this because I think it's something that when I talk to healthcare organizations over the last couple of years, and maybe we can zoom out of the pandemic a bit and think about pre-pandemic and then also pandemic, but pre-pandemic, a lot of organizations had been focusing and talking a lot about the primary care strategy and access and trying to make sure that individuals were able to access primary care providers for the focus of uh, providing care. But then strategically speaking, that primary care provider would be a referral stream or a referral source into specialists within the health system. I looked at some numbers, too, just in preparation for today, um, and I saw that hospital acquisitions of physician practices actually rose 128% from 2012 to 2018, so just before the pandemic. That's really significant. It's not necessarily saying that hospital acquisitions of primary care practices, but just generally physician practices. And I know in talking to healthcare organizations, they were doing this. I mean, they were putting a lot of effort into primary care. Then we started to see that individuals were having a trouble getting access to a primary care provider or in places like Boston, for example, sometimes getting an appointment with a primary care provider. There was a research um, article that came out that said something to the effect of it takes 64 days to get an appointment with a primary care provider in certain markets like Boston. 
So then I started to think about, well, that doesn't seem right because you can't get a doctor very easily. And who wants to go see a primary care provider two months after you're actually experienced some, some sort of symptom? So then when you think about all of these other organizations that are starting to pop up to provide certain types of primary care-like or primary care-light services you know, organizations like Walmart and CVS, and then also membership services like One Medical and Parsley Health and others. There are these other organizations who aren't necessarily attached to a health system anymore who are providing care for people in a very convenient way. I always talk about this. I live across the street from a CVS. I live five blocks down the street from another CVS on one way, and I live three blocks down near a CVS on the other direction. So if I needed to get something immediate and I needed to get it taken care of, I could easily do that. But if I wanted to go see my primary care provider, it might be a lot harder to do that, to take care of something in the immediate moment. So when I'm thinking about the decoupling of primary care from the health system, what I think is going to happen is health systems are going to say, E, our strategy of buying up all of these practices and affiliating with all of these practices for primary care for the one of the sole purposes being to refer business into our specialties, that may start to trickle away because people will be going to get more immediate care in other places. And then what we'll start to see potentially, and maybe this is more long-term, we might start to see that primary care might actually break off entirely. So we might have an about face where organizations were first acquiring these practices. Now they might say, you know what, let's, let's not acquire them. Let's let them be on their own, but let's make sure that we develop really strong relationships instead to make sure that we still can get those referrals. That makes a lot of sense. And there has been a movement too, Carrie, not just with CVS and Walgreens and sort of these pharmacies that are like right in your community where you can get immediate care, but even organizations like you mentioned, One Medical Optum is another that are out there that are looking to acquire a number of the primary care organizations because they can run those much more efficiently and they can bring in that infrastructure that's needed in order to run them more efficiently and become sort of independent players in the marketplace. It's this reminds me of there's, there's always been this kind of vacillation between practices being acquired by health systems and then decoupling and starting on their own. You know, there's this whole movement towards ambulatory surgery centers and we see orthopedics, et cetera. Tell us a little bit about your perspective on that. If we're going to, to decouple everything, then what is a health system? I think that's a big question to be asking. But then when we when we also think about decoupling primary care and surgical centers or ambulatory centers or any of these different entities, at the end of the day, I think it has a lot to do then with partnerships. So I think healthcare organizations like health systems have gotten so big that how is it even possible to manage all of these different sub entities within them. If then you decouple everything, those entities like the primary care entities or the surgical entities or any number of those entities, they may have an opportunity of just doing what they do best. But then there's this whole concept of partnership that has to happen because they can't fulfill everything. Neither can health systems. So health systems need to make sure that they can tap into those patients and bring them into their system. But then also health systems need to also provide um, some sort of partnership or resource to these individual entities. There's also overhead to consider too. That's a lot less overhead that a system has to handle. I don't know. I don't know where that's necessarily going to go. It does take me, if you don't mind me going there, it does take me to 
and you mentioned this before, it takes me to my one of my other trends about payers actually moving into this consumer space. What's happening with, I think, payers, and we're, we're definitely seeing this with Optum, is that the Optum care group within Optum, they have, I think now over 50,000 physicians, mostly primary care, but some specialty care. They have 50,000 physicians who work for Optum Care in different markets. But what's interesting is that Optum definitely believes that by keeping the care within those Optum Care locations and then also being able to figure out the technology behind the scenes as well as the payment behind the scenes. And they're also thinking about value-based care and making sure that there's that opportunity to actually manage care in a cost-effective way. They think that they can do things better and keep it in an enclosed environment and actually provide better outcomes for their patients. I wrote about this thinking, oh, well, CVS and Walmart and even Amazon, they're the big disruptors. They're the sneaker waves of uh, the pandemic. But then when I thought a little bit more about this, Optum and others in the payer space are really, I think, going to be the winners of this post-pandemic period because they will have created these massive physician groups that are all held within that payer group. So they fund the care, but they also provide the care and they can do it in a much more cost-effective way. And they have data and they have technology that's uniting everything. They're the ones that I think are going to be uh, providing even more of the disruption in the space. And we're going to see it potentially this year. You know, what's not lost on me throughout all of this is understanding the things that Optum and United Healthcare have that bring advantage to, to the environment is understanding that relationship of not just patients as patients, but patients as members of like sort of an entity, right? Of an org- of their organization. I think that p- uh, payers have been saying this for a very long time. They look at the relationship they have with that member, so to speak, as being more than just delivery of care. It's at looking at their overall health and their wellness and providing preventative uh, measures, et cetera. These are things that, you know, in the hollowed halls of health systems we talk about, but it's really hard for us to accomplish those because it's just a matter of kind of reappropriating resources. Do you think that Optum and United Healthcare have an advantage because they have deep pocketbooks, so to speak? (laughs) (laughs) I I think so. Uh, I think they have uh, the one critical element, and you mentioned it, it's the member concept. So like no one's really a member of, I'm here in Boston, so nobody's really a member of Mass General Hospital, which is, you know, where I get my care, my husband works. Nobody's really a member. You just go there because you have something that needs to be taken care of. And I think systems tend to be reactive because that's how they're set up. That's sort of how healthcare is set up. But on the flip side, the payers and most specifically, let's say Optum and Optum Care, they have members. And so they can collectively do things with members. It's like a club almost when I think about it. You can do things with members. You can encourage members to behave in a certain way or to take certain, let's say, nutritional steps. Or actually, you can encourage them to have you know walking competitions for actual steps. You can help manage a member population because they're part of a closed system that has an incentive to not only reduce costs, but also 
uh, improve outcomes of that sub-segment. Health systems don't really have that. So it's almost like comparing apples and oranges. Right. And I think that that's a subtle but very important shift in how they actually perceive consumers and and patients in this new world. I think that we also see that from these high-tech entrants coming into the space. Mm -hmm. You know, like you, you mentioned Amazon a couple of times. I think about Amazon Care and some of the telemedicine initiatives that they're doing under that, you know, auspice. And there's there's a number of other entrants into the space around telemedicine and telehealth, which also have this concept of membership as well. They do. And we were just talking about this prior to, you know, hitting record on this interview. But I mean, think about your affiliation with Apple. There's an affinity, there's an affiliation, there's a desire to use the, the technology. So these other organizations, like you mentioned, Amazon, I mean, even CVS, if you looked at their investor report uh, from a few weeks ago, and, and you looked at everything that they were doing, as far as just getting their technology up to speed, and making sure that if you're part of their, I think it's called CVS Rewards or CVS Care, I can't remember what it's called, because I don't like to get all of those receipts. <laughs> so I try not to deliver my phone number <laughs> to them whenever I'm there. But using their app and making sure that they know when you walk in there and what you're filling a prescription for and what you're buying, they're putting together a composite of someone who walks into not only the store, but deeper into the store to get care. I received uh, my booster there, my vaccine booster there. And they're providing a sort of, it's not a membership opportunity, but it's definitely an an affiliation or an affinity. What I think healthcare can learn from these tech companies or non-healthcare-esque type companies is that they put the consumer first. So the consumer has an affinity for that org or for the product or for some element of that company. And they're always trying to think about because the consumer is thinking about this and loving this product or whatever it is, how can I continue to delight the consumer and drive a better consumer experience? And I don't necessarily think healthcare is there yet. When I talk to healthcare organizations, a lot of times uh, individuals will just shake their head and just say, you know, I just don't understand. And I think to myself, this is super easy. All we have to think about is every step of the way, how do you treat your patient like a consumer and make sure that that consumer has an absolutely amazing experience at every step along that journey or along that path. One of my uh, additional trends is everyone's been talking about consumerism and all of these non-healthcare organizations and, and tech organizations have always been talking about consumerism. It, it's, an, it's an assumption, like this is, a, this, a consumer is a consumer. But now in healthcare, because people have been talking about it, we've now made this shift where organizations are now, I think this year, going to think, okay, consumers are expecting a certain experience. I have to treat a patient more like a consumer and not bristle at the fact that I didn't say patient, but now I'm saying consumer. I have to treat that (laughs) consumer as a real consumer and I have to figure out how do I delight them every step of the way because they also have a lot of choices. Like I was saying before, I could choose to go to CVS to get certain care because it's easy, it's convenient. But would I choose to go to MGH or would I choose to go somewhere else because I have a loyalty to it? I'm not sure. I think I just have to have a really good experience. And then once you have a really good experience, then that choice is a lot easier. That third trend that you were kind of getting at here is probably the most profound in that we do have to treat our members, our patients, whomever, as really consumers. And really, 
making a nod towards them, giving them the opportunity to to seek out and find those right experiences. And I think that's one of the areas where health systems also struggle significantly around. It has been, you're right, they still bristle at that concept of calling a patient a consumer. <laughs> but really, when we talk about consumerism, it's less of a noun and more of an adjective and a verb. An adjective in describing how they're behaving and, and some of the things that they're bringing to the table, and a verb in terms of what they're doing, their actions that they're taking, because yes. ultimately, our, our patients are acting and reacting as consumers to everything that we put in front of them. I, I can go back to the digital journey. I watched from 2007 until I left Google in 2016 we had access to an internal tool called Wildcat where we could look at different search terms by vertical. And so I watched the evolution of how people searched for healthcare over those eight and a half years. Looking at how people are searching for information, it's quite clear that that has changed. And so it's really important to be paying attention to what people expect. And yes, people are now shopping for their healthcare. They are digitally looking for the best of something or the you know closest to me or you know all of these different really crazy different elements like i need to have a doctor you know who has an appointment at 2 p.m. who also accepts blue cross like we're seeing that in the search data that's how people search for tvs that's how people search for computers that's how people go on amazon and search for specifics about certain things that they want to buy so why should we assume that it's any different in healthcare it's just applying what they're doing outside of healthcare to healthcare. And it's just being a consumer. Consumer is a consumer. And over the last two years, consumerism has certainly shifted in a way where it's become certainly online. We have seen industries transform themselves to support where we're at now, managing through the pandemic, and we're never going to go back, right? The toothpaste right. is out of the tube on this one. We're just never able to go back to this. And so all of these trends are kind of coming together and causing a massive amount of disruption in the traditional healthcare provider space. I'm a little excited about it, though. I mean, I've been excited about it, but this is very exciting because I think this, I keep saying, oh, this is the year. And then the next year comes and I say, this is the year. <laughs> I'm hoping that this is the year. I think we're all hoping that this is the year that maybe pandemic morphs into endemic and that we can go to a new state of whatever normal is. I am excited to see what the changes over the last two years have brought to how this can change the entire healthcare industry, because I think we are really set set up for some significant changes. And it will definitely have growing pains associated with it. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we're all going to come out better as, as a result. Maybe that's really positive thinking, but I like to think positively. <laughs> well, that's not bad. I think your your predictions kind of sh shine a light on the fact that there is this inherent tension of the healthcare customer journey in that you have the the drivers of convenience and access which are things like CVS, Walmart, those things that are you know within blocks of where you live where you can get in easy and access. You have this other tension of will it be covered are you, are we part of a membership group and that's where mm -hmm. we see like the Optum Care and the Blue Cross Blue Shield and the other you know the other as you call them payviders, right? Yes. We'll start to get into. And then the consumer itself making their own decisions. Yes. Um, around like what matters most to them. And the, all of those things are kind of swirling around the health system 
world and are going to disrupt it. So much like you, I am optimistic as well, but it's been, this is great. Uh, You know, you have other predictions here. We're going to link to your article in the show notes so they can learn about some of the other things that you, uh, you put forward, Carrie. Oh, thank you. Is there anything else to kind of wrap up this conversation today that we missed? I would say, let's just keep up this sense of hope and optimism. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. I think I think that's what we all have to. Carrie, you know, people listening in are going to want to connect with you online and learn more about Yaks if they don't already. So what are ways that they can connect with you? You can connect with me on LinkedIn. So I'm just Carrie Lichen, L-I-K-E-N on LinkedIn. If you want to find out more about Yext, you could go to yext.com. And then I know, Chris, you're encouraging me to be on Twitter. So I do have, <laughs> I do have a Twitter account but I'm not really active there yet, but it's at Gary Ligon. Well, we're going to connect to all of those in the show notes. So if people listening in, they could just click on there and, and find out more and, and even uh, go, go follow Carrie on, on Twitter so she can build up her, her <laughs> audience there. Carrie, thanks again for uh, jumping on and sharing some of your ideas of the predictions. We'll, we'll have to have you back on another time, maybe at the end of this year to see uh, how far we've come against your predictions. I would love to do that. Thanks for having me as always. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Special thanks to Carrie for coming on the show again. Like we mentioned earlier, it's always fun to have folks back that we've uh, enjoyed so much historically, and uh, I've had such friendship and kinship with. And she's certainly been a big, big supporter of the show. So really excited that she was on and share some of her cool predictions. So awesome stuff. We mentioned it earlier. Touchpoint.health is the website. There you can sign up for the TPS report. TPS report certainly is an email that uh, you will enjoy and look forward to each and every Monday morning. But besides those articles to start your week, it'll also have a few links to like upcoming conferences and all that kind of fun stuff. So another plug to go download that. All right, Chris, a couple of recommendations before we uh, get out of here for the week. Yeah, Reed, I'm going to recommend a guilty pleasure that I've been watching on TV uh, over the last couple of weeks. And it's not lost on people listening in that I'm a big Star Wars fan. I just love Star Wars. I think I may even recommended The Mandalorian a couple of years ago. Well, the newest show on Disney Plus is The Book of Boba Fett. Mm, it yeah. is amazing. Have you been watching it, Reed? I have not watched it. Just uh, I just saw it, um, I guess, advertised or something like that. Well, you know, Boba Fett is a well-known character in the Star Wars universe, even though he really had a comprised airtime of about three minutes in the original three movies. But he developed this through all the Star Wars fans, developed a big backstory that was kind of highlighted through other mediums. So books that have been written in Star Wars, comic books, that sort of thing, whatever. Well, the book of Boba Fett is designed to bring his story to light. It starts with him on the planet of Tatooine, where he actually fell into the the big gaping pit in, in the desert. He finds his way out, spoiler alert, and then it tells out his story uh, from that point on, which is really interesting. The people who directed the show and made the show, they really are big fans of 
the original Star Wars or fans of, you know, the entire Star Wars universe all the way through to the books and the comic books and other things like that, because I'm telling you, this show pays fan service to everybody. There are callbacks to the original series there are callbacks to the prequels. There's even call forwards to the future uh-huh. of the you know, movies. It's entertaining. It's delightful. But if you are a fan or if you're like even a kind of a fan, I think you'll get a kick out of it because you'll you'll be able to see people show you know, characters that show up, including the piano playing uh, elephant right in the cantina. He's in this show as well as others. And it also it's kind of a, a spinoff of The Mandalorian. So The Mandalorian is back in the show. I just really love it. And it comes out every Wednesday. And it's I think it's a nine uh, episode arc of this of this season. We're about maybe six episodes in, and it's just really a lot of fun. Anybody who likes Star Wars um, or any of their kids that are kind of into Star Wars, either hardcore or just fans of it, I think you have a really good experience watching this. I highly recommend watching The Book of Boba Fett on Disney+. Plus. That's my recommendation. Uh, I like it. I like it. I'm actually going to uh, recommend an iPhone app or a game, mobile game, I guess I should say. And you've actually recommended this one before. And I downloaded it because you recommended it. And I played it a time or two. But now my youngest has gotten into it. And I started watching her play it. And it, it really it really is a lot of fun. And there's no way to win. Um, so I know that's a great setup and everything. <laughs> but it's the Just Mowing app on iOS. And... Uh, I didn't you recommend this? I did. I did. I love okay. it. Yeah. 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 And so literally it's just mowing like that. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> and so you just go from like board to board. There's no way to really lose. You just simply mow grass and that's pretty much all you did. And she loves it. And it's a lot of fun and uh, she has a good time and I'm not going to pretend like it does something for her like hand-eye dexterity or something i don't know but it's just uh it's a fun little game and so again if you if you're not somebody that sits still easily you know and like maybe you travel you're in the airport you know or you're doing you're sitting waiting for things to start or whatever again you can't lose so it doesn't really matter if you just like close your phone like in the middle of stuff or whatever but uh yeah just mowing that's awesome i love that app yeah it's it's fun it's it's brainless, right? And it's just, it's almost meditative doing it. So I'm glad, I'm glad you're, I'm glad she likes it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. So, well, there you go. Another good episode, another good recording. Thanks everybody for hanging with us and uh, certainly appreciate all the support. So again, touchpoint.health is the website, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to listen or stream. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Twitter, LinkedIn, probably the best way to track us down. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health. Yeah.